Now we're into the second week of our series, Broken, and as we said last week, one of the great temptations we face in life uh, is the temptation to try to resist God or what he wants to do in our life, to say no to God, but when you really think about it, it's pretty ridiculous for us to try to say no to God, but, but often in the heat of the moment, it just seems like the right thing to do. So in this series, we're looking at a cast of characters who played a key role leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And these are people who tried to resist what God was doing, tried to say no to God, but in trying to resist God, they actually became a part of fulfilling the plan of God. Last week, we saw this in the life of Caiaphas, the high priest. This week, we're going to look at Judas. And as much as we despise Judas... And as much as we hate Judas, I mean, let's be honest, none of us name our kids Judas, right, for a reason. As much as we despise Judas, I'm going to tell you, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. And I say that because there seems to be something in all of us from time to time when we want to strike some kind of deal, some kind of bargain with God. And if you don't believe that, just evaluate our prayer, right? Next time you pray, think about what you pray. It usually sounds something like this. God, if I, will you? And God, since I, shouldn't you? Or God, would you at least consider, or God, have you, you noticed? In other words, instead of coming to God from the perspective, the standpoint of God, I just surrender to you. And God, I'm going to ask for some things, but at the end of the day, it's not about my will. It's not about my desires. God, it's about your will. See, we don't do that. We come to God from the standpoint, hey, God, let's strike a bargain. God, let's make a deal. And I know you don't think about it that way, but for some of you, if you're honest, that describes your entire relationship with God. You're always trying to do a deal with God. In this relationship with God, there always has to be something in it for you. We're gonna see that in the life of Judas. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And while you're turning, let me give you just a little bit of background to bring you up to speed. If you've read the Gospels, you know that when Jesus went public with his ministry, he was constantly talking about his coming kingdom. And so it makes sense, Judas being one of the disciples, that he would assume that one day if Jesus is going to set up a kingdom, he's going to lead a rebellion, he's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to take his rightful place on the throne as the new king of Israel. It also makes sense that if you're a Jew, you know, you want to be close to the guy who's going to be the next king of the Jews. So Judas, he hung close to Jesus. But you got to understand, Judas wasn't the only disciple that thought that way. In fact, most of the disciples, at least early on, they weren't following Jesus for the sake of Jesus. They were basically following Jesus for what they could get out of it. In fact, there's a really interesting verse in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Peter said this to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us. In other words, Jesus, we walked away from our families. We walked away from our businesses. Any security we had in life to follow you, what's in it for us? Jesus, what are we going to get out of this? There was another time when the disciples, they were sitting around together and an argument broke out about, hey, when Jesus sets up this kingdom, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to hold the loftiest position? Who's going to have the most perks? But it's interesting, as time went on, the disciples began to understand Jesus doesn't make deals. They begin to understand Jesus doesn't bargain. He was looking for people who were willing to surrender. And eventually, the disciples, they got to the place, eventually, where they were able to put down, set aside their own agenda, even die for Jesus, all except Judas. 
As you're going to see this weekend, Judas never stopped trying to put the deal together. He was never really able to fully surrender. He would follow and he would listen. And he would follow and he would listen. And he would follow and he would listen. And he kept waiting for Jesus to establish this new kingdom on earth. But as time went on, Judas finally realized that Jesus wasn't going to do the deal. And Judas began to think, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I miscalculated. Maybe, maybe I made a bad decision. Maybe, maybe I need to cut my losses. And there's one particular scene in Matthew chapter 26 that just seems to send Judas right over the edge. It seems to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. If you have your Bible, if not, you can follow up on the screens. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things he had been teaching, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. Now, Passover was a great festival for the Jew. It was for the time when the Jews would get together and they would celebrate how God delivered the Jews through Moses from 430 years of being slaves, being in bondage in Egypt. And during this festival, historians tell us that over two and a half million people poured into Jerusalem to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness. But if you look at verse three, not everybody's celebrating. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled. This is the Sanhedrin that we looked at last week. They assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, you remember him. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So Caiaphas, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they have a problem. They want to kill Jesus, but they know they can't do it during the festival. And the reason they can't do it during the festival with all of these visitors coming into Jerusalem, Jesus, by this point, he had a lot of followers. His following has grown. They didn't want to start a riot because they knew if a riot started among the Jews, Rome would come in, they would squash the riot, they would lose their place, they would lose their perks, they would lose their status as the Sanhedrin. So they decide, we just got to sit back. And they stroke their beards and they just wait for the right moment. But it's interesting, when you get to verse 6, the scene shifts from Jerusalem to a little mountain village called Bethany. Bethany's located about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and it says in verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, and Jesus is there for dinner, and normally you wouldn't want to go to a, a leper's house for dinner. There's just something about unappetizing, about the possibility he's barbecuing, one of his fingers falls off, onto the grill becomes a part of your dinner, right? But in this case... The good news is Jesus, he's already healed Simon, okay? So while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Very expensive perfume. Mark, in his account of this, tells us that this perfume was pure nard, and it was worth about 300 denarii, which means absolutely nothing to you. But a denarius was considered a day's wage at this time in the first century. 200 denarii was considered a year's wage. And so 300 denarii, I mean, that's, that's like working at sash. You know what I'm saying? And while, so, so this is going on. Jesus is sitting down. He's having this meal. And it says that while he's reclining at the table, this woman, she runs in, she interrupts, she, she breaks this vase, and she pours this expensive perfume over Jesus' head. John, in his account, says she then took her hair and, and, and she wiped his feet and she wiped his ankles. It was this awesome expression of love and worship. But you got to understand, not everybody's crazy about what's going on. 
Because Jesus is surrounded by the 12. He's surrounded by these followers who are used to just making it one meal to the next. I mean, they're used to living day to day, hand to mouth. And, and so this extravagance that this woman is exhibiting, it makes no sense to them whatsoever. So it says in verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were mad. They were so angry. And it's not clear who they were angry at. We don't know if they were mad at the woman thinking that she wasted this perfume or maybe, maybe they're mad at Jesus for even allowing this to happen. But they're mad, they're indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. So they're like, hey man, we just care about the poor people, you know. Hey Jesus, this could have, this could have fed people for weeks if you hadn't allowed her to waste it on you, Right? By the way, John gives us some additional insight when he recorded this event, John chapter 12. He writes this in verse four, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objective. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. Now notice this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. In other words, you're beginning to see now, Judas wasn't in this because of Jesus. Judas was in this because of Judas. He's in it like, what's in it for me? You know, How can I leverage Jesus for my own purpose? And John tells us now he's actually to the point where he's, he's stealing money from the group's bank account. And when you think about it, I mean, that's not very smart because isn't Jesus the guy who actually knows what people are thinking, right? And, and, and what they're up to. So it's, it's not very, very smart. But on this occasion, he watches as this woman pours a year's salary, a, a, a worth of perfume over Jesus' head, and he goes nuts. And he's like, hey, Peter, psst, would you look at that? Think about it. If she just sold that, we could have used that money. We could have given it to the poor. Peter, you need to say something to Jesus. I've tried. He just won't listen to me. My point is this. Judas seems to be in the background and he's stirring the pot. He's like, if we keep wasting money like this, we're never going to be able to set up a kingdom. If we keep wasting money like this, we're never going to get anywhere. Now look at verse 10. Aware of this, in other words, Jesus is aware of all the drama that's going on around him. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Then he makes this statement. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And the disciples, when they hear this, they're like, Jesus, that's crazy talk. You're going to be the new king. Plus, you're not even sick. You heal sick people. Just a few days ago, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Why are we even talking about death? But you got to understand, this whole scenario, this was the final straw for Judas. He's been in this for three, three and a half years. He's heard enough. He's seen enough. And Judas begins to realize, this isn't going to work out like I thought. He realizes Jesus is not going to overthrow Rome. He's not going to set up a kingdom on this earth. He realizes he's not going to be a charter member. 
He realizes that he walked away from everything in life that was important to him to follow Jesus, and here he is three years later, and he's got nothing to show for it. So he makes a decision. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So he goes to these guys and says, listen, guys, you probably recognize me. I've been following Jesus around Palestine for three years. And to be honest, it's gotten me nowhere. Maybe we can strike a deal. What would you be willing to give me if I turn on him? And they respond, how about 30 pieces of silver? And Judas is like, you know what? It's not a lot, but it's more than I've made following Jesus. By the way, Exodus chapter 31 or 21 verse 32 tells us that 30 shekels of silver was the going price for a slave that had been gored by a bull. So literally for the price of a damaged slave, Judas throws Jesus under the bus. And this story is not new to us, but every time we hear the story, we we listen to it and think, how could somebody betray Jesus? He's doing all these miracles, all these great things. Everybody loves Jesus. How could someone betray Jesus? It's very simple. Let me give you a principle. When our agenda takes precedent over God's agenda, we set ourselves up to betray our Heavenly Father. Let me say that again. When our agenda or what we want begins to take precedence over God's agenda or what he wants to be accomplished, we set ourselves up to betray our heavenly father. We would never do it consciously, but you gotta understand, that's why Judas betrayed Jesus. There was something he wanted more than what Jesus had to offer him. He wanted what Judas wanted. And so he decided to go to the dark side. Verse 15, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So he gets his money and he snakes his way back through the alleys, the back alleys of Jerusalem. He makes his way back to the group. You'll remember they're meeting in the upper room and the first thing Jesus does when Judas returns is he gets up from the table, he takes off his outer garment, he puts a towel around his waist, he gets a basin of water and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. All the disciples, that would include the feet of Judas. That means that he took Judas's filthy sandals off of his filthy feet and Jesus washed his feet fully knowing what Judas had just done. By the way, that's not what I would have done. I would, ah, there he is, there's a traitor, get him, let's pile on, you know. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't even react to what Judas has done. He just goes on as if nothing has happened. And then while they're sitting around the table in the upper room having this Passover meal together, finally Jesus drops the bomb. He said, hey guys, one of you is going to betray me. You know. And somewhere in the midst of 
the emotion that followed that statement, Judas leaned over to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, is it me? And Jesus responded, yeah, it's you. And you know it's you. And so Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. I won't stop you. Because I don't deal. And I can't be leveraged. And I can't be threatened. And I can't be manipulated. Judas, I realize this didn't work out like you planned. I understand you got another deal. You go ahead and do the deal. I won't do anything to stop you. I mean, is that unbelievable? And I wonder if Judas thought, you are one pathetic excuse for a Messiah. I mean, to sit here and know what I'm about to do and do nothing. You are a coward. You're not a king. You're not a Messiah. I mean, who in their right mind, knowing what I'm about to do, just sits here and does nothing. And he gets up and he walks out and sets the scene for the arrest and the trial of Jesus. We're going to look at that next week, by the way. And Jesus does absolutely nothing to stop him. Now, if you don't hear anything else this weekend, please hear this. You got to understand the reason Jesus does nothing is because Jesus doesn't deal. He doesn't bargain. He doesn't barter. He doesn't trade. He's not going to be manipulated. He is a king. So Judas, he, he sits back and he watches as Jesus is arrested. Jesus still doesn't put up a fight. He watches as the disciples desert him and they flee and they just leave Jesus all by himself. And finally it hits him. Finally it occurs to him. They're going to actually kill him. I don't think he ever thought that was a reality. I don't think that thought really ever crossed his mind. And I say that because of Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. I want us to say those three words out loud. Let's say it together. That's your responsibility. Say it one more time. That's your responsibility. So in this intense moment of isolation, my guess is right now, Judas could not feel more alone on the planet. He hears these words. Hey, Judas, this was your idea. You came to us. We didn't come to you. This was your deal. Hey, Judas, you set it up. The consequences, Judas, they're on you. You deal with it. And on his way out, God struck him down with a bolt of lightning. Nope. While he was making his way through Jerusalem on a donkey, he had a head-on collision with another donkey. went right through the ears. Nope. Died that night due to a mysterious fire. Nope. Verse 5, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. No lightning bolt 
necessary, no donkey accident necessary, no strange disease necessary, no mysterious fire necessary. You got to understand, God doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to stoop that low. He doesn't need to enter into the world. If you, then I, at the end of the day, God doesn't have to do anything. And it's because Judas hung himself. And you got to understand the legacy, his legacy is the legacy of any person who tries to bargain, who tries to deal with God. It's the legacy of any person who tries to bring God down to our level. And it is simply this, God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be stopped. God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be stopped. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. If some of you are honest with yourself, your whole approach to God is the bargaining thing. Your whole relationship with God is, God, if I do this for you, what's in it for me? But it's all about doing the deal. I mean, in your life, you're like, God, I know it was wrong to have sex with that woman that I met in the bar last night. But I'm in church today, you know. And you somehow think God's going to look at you and say, wow, you're right. And I noticed you were even trying to sing this weekend. I think I'm just going to let it slide. Your wife's never going to find out about it, right? Or God, I know I'm embezzling from work, but God, I did give up Brussels sprouts for Lent. I mean, that's got to impress you. Or God, I know I cheated on that exam, but I really do plan on getting into a small group, right? Let me tell you something. When we live that way, it's like calling God stupid. And you need to hear that. God doesn't deal. He doesn't bargain. You're not going to manipulate God. He's God. And if you're a person who tries to approach God from the standpoint, hey, God, can we make a deal? There's just some things I need to share with you. And they're going to be brutally honest, and they may hurt your feelings. But I'm going to share them with you anyway. First of all, if you're trying to work out a deal with God so you can get away with something, my advice is just go ahead and do it. You probably won't hear that in church very often, but I don't know, just go ahead and do it. He probably won't do anything to stop you. You probably won't have an accident on the way. You probably won't contract some strange disease. Lightning probably isn't going to strike. And it's because God just doesn't deal in those terms. And there may be exceptions. There are exceptions. We read some exceptions in the scriptures. So be careful, right? But if there's something in your life, you want to kind of pull the wool over God's eyes, you want to disobey him, wander around outside the boundaries of God's principles and truth, just go ahead and do it. He's probably not going to stop you because he doesn't have to stoop to that level. He's not going to bargain with you. He's not going to barter with you. He's not going to say, if you do that, I'm going to do that. He's not going to do that. And it's very confusing for those of us who love you. I mean, most of us, if we've had teens, we've had conversations, you know, that sounded something like this. I want you to know, honey, if you sneak out, if you break the rules, you can expect to get caught and there will be consequences. And what you're hoping is, you're hoping if your kid ever does something like that, you know, the police pick them up, throw them in jail all night, scares them to death, and they never will disobey you again, right? But they sneak out and they have the time of their life. And now they want to do it every weekend, right? And for a parent, that is so frustrating. 
And so we're like, you know, as they're doing their own thing, like God couldn't, couldn't they have just like a, a little wreck, you know? Nothing big, no injuries, maybe even driving their friend's car. That would be cool. But, you know, can't there be some kind of small, instant consequence? I mean, this is very frustrating, God. They're getting away with this, you know? You need to know, for the most part, it just doesn't happen that way. There usually isn't any instant consequence. And we're like, why, why can't there be some consequences? You know, maybe you're married and you see your spouse and you know what they're up to. And like, they're just getting away with, and you're like, God, why aren't there some consequences? So if that's kind of where you want to dwell, the good news is you can probably do the deal without God. You can probably do what you want to do and it's a good chance he won't get in your way. Here's the second thing you need to know. At the end of the day, you're responsible for the outcome of your decisions. And initially, you know, we sit in church, we hear that and it doesn't really bother us because we think we're so cool, so slick, so smart. Somehow we're going to pull the wool over God's eyes. We're going to get away with something no one else ever gets away with. But you need to know that when you do that, you're going to be responsible for the outcome of your decision. And when it blows up in your face, you can't come back and say, but I didn't think or I didn't realize. Just like the Pharisees said to Judas, hey, Judas, that's your responsibility. This was your idea. You decided to do the deal. You're on your own. Here's the third thing I need to tell you. Eventually eventually you will begin to self-destruct. You see, people who intentionally work against God, knowingly, always self-destruct. No lightning bolt necessary, no car accident necessary, no disease necessary. Judas hung himself. He needed no help whatsoever. And if you decide to work contrary against God outside the principles, outside of his truths, outside of his obedience, I'm telling you, eventually you will hang yourself. God won't need to intervene. It's just the natural consequence of trying to do life contrary to God. I call it the law of diminishing returns. Eventually it will catch up with you. You see this all the time. You'll see it in the single adult or the college student who's trying to get the guy, trying to get the girl, and when God doesn't cooperate, there's kind of the attitude, forget God, I'll do this myself. It's the married person who meets someone and it's innocent at first, but then something develops. And it's like, how can it be wrong? It feels so right. God wants me to be happy. Obviously, he's placed this love in my life. And you have the affair and it blows up and destroys everything. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I should have listened to God. Because now I'm responsible for my decision and I don't like the outcome. I'm just telling you as a Christian, when you decide to go contrary to God, eventually you'll begin to self-destruct. And here's the fourth thing I want to share with you. At the end of the day, you're going to come back to God. You're going to. You're going to be just like that prodigal. You're going to come back to God. And when you come back, you're not going to come back to bargain. And you're not going to come back to strike a deal. You're going to come back to God with your hands in the air saying, I surrender. I don't like where this journey took me. And I'm responsible for the outcome. I surrender. And you'll come back with scars that you'll have for the rest of your life. 
And you will come back with memories that you will never be able to erase. And you're going to come back with some broken dreams and some busted up relationships that can't ever be repaired. But when you come back, here's the good news. Your heavenly father will receive you back. Because that's just the kind of God he is. He's grace. He's a God of mercy. But I got to be honest with you. He's not the kind of God that erases consequences. He loves you too much for that. You know, if there was ever a person who had the leverage to do a deal with God, it was Jesus. And if there was ever a time when he needed to pull off a deal with God, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and the scriptures tell us that Jesus, on his knees, sweating great drops of blood, said, God, I need something from you that can prevent me from going through what I'm about to go through. Father, if there's any way around this suffering, if there's any way around me taking on the sin of the world, if there's any way around that moment that I know is coming when you're going to have to turn your back on me, if there's any way around that, I'd like a detour. But God, I'm not going to strike a deal. Father, I'm not going to say if you'll do A, then I'll do B. But now that you know what I want, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Because you're not a God who bargains. You're a God who deserves my surrender. So when you think about your approach to God, here's the question I want to leave you with. Have you gotten to the point where you're willing to say, no more dealing, no more bargaining? I want to begin my morning, I want to end my day saying, God, not my will, not my will, your will be done. God, here's what I crave. God, here's what I think I need. This is what I desire. But God, I'm not offering you something in return. I'm, I'm just laying it out there. I'm just telling you where I'm coming from, God. But at the end of the day, I surrender to you because it's not my desire. It's not my will. God, it's your desire and your will. No more bargaining. I'm just going to surrender. No more negotiating. I'm, I'm just going to surrender. And I got to tell you, when you make that decision, your heavenly Father takes responsibility for the outcome of the journey. But until you can get there and you can fully surrender to God, I got to tell you, the legacy of your life will be like the legacy of all these men's lives. And at the end of the day, the moral of the story is always the same. God's hand cannot be forced, and his will cannot be stopped. And for those of us who live our lives attempting to do that, the consequences are always the same. A whole lot of hurt, a whole lot of agony, a whole lot of disappointment, and a whole lot of regret. So I'll just close by asking you this question. Do you barter with God, constantly trying to strike a deal? Or have you really gotten to the place where you say, God, I'm just surrendering to your truth, your principles, your precepts, your law, your plan for my life. I surrender, God, because you don't deal. 
and you don't bargain because you're God. You got to get there one day. Let's bow together. If I knew how to make this decision for you, I would make the decision for you. Because I think the most difficult aspect of my job is watching people who are Christians, who've accepted what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross, acknowledge that three days later he rose again to empower us to be the people he created us to be, but yet refuse to surrender to him in the day-to-day living of life. And to watch as they feel they know more than God and are smarter than God and are trying to strike deals with God. God, I'll do this and then you'll do that. Or if I do this, will you do this? And then we begin to work outside the boundaries of God has established for us and the mess that we can create. I know it's hard and it's scary, but just to be able to come to the point where we say, God, I I surrender. Not my will, not my desire, not my plan, but your will, your desire, my plan for my life. I would challenge you as we head into the Easter season and we're once again reminded that how costly our sin was to our Savior. That it's, it's our sin that put him there that we would remember that such a great payment for our sin demands a great response. And the response is, not my will, God, but yours. Maybe you're here this weekend at, or you're sitting at one of our campuses and right now you're, you're, living, you're living in the backwash of one of those excursions outside the plan of God. And you're carrying the scars. You're carrying the memories. You've busted up some relationships. Some dreams have been crushed. I want to tell you, God will receive you back. And he'll clean you up and he'll dust you off and he'll say, okay, let's, let's get moving again. But out of love for you, he's going to leave those things with you because he needs you to remember what life is like outside the boundaries that he's established for you. But you know what? He'll take those scars. He'll take those broken dreams. And and, and it's amazing how the mess that you created, he can make something beautiful out of your mess. But it will require you to surrender. Father, I, I right now pray for people I know are hurting and people that are feeling torn in so many directions because this whole idea of surrender, oh, submitting to you. It is so scary from our perspective because we just don't know what you're going to do and require and ask. I'm just reminded of the words from from Jeremiah that that you have plans to prosper us and not to harm us. That you know what is best for us. And Father, sometimes I think we just lose perspective that We are eternal creatures. We're going to spend eternity somewhere. For those of us who have accepted what 
your son did for us on the cross, this payment for our sins, we, we will get to spend eternity. And so the big scheme of things, 60, 70, 80 years on this earth, nothing. James, this is a vapor. And you're preparing us for eternity. And so it doesn't always go because from our perspective, it's all about life now, but you're looking at eternity. And so, Father, when we surrender, we don't know what that means. But if we learn anything as we look at the life of Judas and we look at the example of Jesus, I think it's pretty clear who we want to be like. Bring us all to the place where we can say on our knees, you know what I want, you know what I crave, what I feel like I need, but at the end of the day, God, my will and my desire really isn't that important because you know what's best for me. May we get there. And for those who have been running, for those who have been coloring outside the lines and playing outside the boundaries, Father, may they come back to you this weekend and may they experience your, the freedom that comes and your grace and mercy that brings forgiveness. And you, may you begin the healing process in their lives and bring them close to you. In your name we pray, amen. 